You're listening to Managing Leadership Anxiety, Yours and Theirs, a podcast offered in partnership with Missio Alliance. Each episode, we discuss internal and relational pressures, how they block effective leadership, and how we can move through them to a greater health. And now your host, Steve Cuss. Okay, folks. Hey, this, uh, this episode, I've got a, a fantastic guest, and it's Jenny Catron. And I'm sure you're familiar with Jenny. She's a very well-known leader and leadership coach and pastor. Uh, she served for years as an executive pastor. And in some ways, that's the recent version. One of the reasons I really like Jenny is she's one of those leaders that got in with the church early when the church was really small. And so even though she ended her tenure at that church as an executive pastor, it's really code word for, I did everything that was needed to help this church build and I adapted as I went and changed. And then by the end of Jenny's tenure, she was overseeing several campuses, several thousand people. And so I'm always interested in bringing on a leader who has been in the trenches, has a lot of experience. I was really keen in 2021 to get Jenny on the show because she listens to so many church leaders. And my uh, commitment has just been in early 2021, let's get some guests on who have their finger on the pulse of how church leaders are doing. The other thing I'd like to say about Jenny is as I've followed her work for several years, what I've really come to appreciate is she has an equal passion for leadership under the surface, uh, what's going on internally in a leader, which of course is mostly what this podcast is about. But she's also equally concerned with productivity, effectiveness, time management, good stewardship of your skills. And uh, if if you chase Jenny on Amazon, you'll see she's written a a, a bunch of books. Probably her most well-known book is The Four Dimensions of Extraordinary Leadership, The Power of Leading from Your Heart, Soul, Mind, and Strength. Jenny, welcome to the Managing Leadership Anxiety Podcast. Steve, I'm so glad to be here and excited for the conversation. Grateful for you and, and this podcast and the work you do. So looking forward to this. Excellent. Let's begin, like I know for you, 2020, obviously, even in your work, you've had to pivot a lot. Uh, from what you've done, but you've still had your finger on the pulse of church leaders. So now that we're in 2021, what are you seeing as some of the top challenges that church leaders are facing? Yeah, such a great question, because I think, you know, if you had asked any of us 10 months ago, 11 months ago, you know, would we still be trying to understand and, and react to a very changed dynamic for ministry leadership, I think we would have all thought this is crazy. Um, and and I do, I think, uh, you know, uh, and just even to back up from that, you referenced uh, even having to pivot my own work. And I think one of the things that was core, and I, one of the things I'm encouraging leaders all the time is, hey, we've got to go back to our purpose. Uh, you know, so when all of the usual mechanisms of how we do our work, you know, for me, consulting and coaching leaders or ministry leaders and pastoring and gathering people on Sundays when all of the usual suspects were disrupted, it was the question of, hey, what is what is my purpose? And for me, it was my purpose is to cultivate healthy and thriving leaders and teams. And I could still do that. I just had to find different ways to do it. That's what I'm noticing for a lot of ministry leaders right now is really making sure we're anchored in that sense of purpose and mission and why do we do what we do and that the church isn't just this physical structure and uh, and so that that that's one of the things that I'm noticing. But the other thing that probably is a passion point of mine is the importance of ministry teams being strong and healthy, and leaders paying really good attention to their own self leadership, um, as as you would encourage, and then also being real attentive to the development of their staff right now, um, because I think what we're discovering is that. Uh, our teams have to be probably leaner than ever um, in that, you know, a lot of a lot of ministry teams had to make cuts over the last year um, or at least let natural attrition kind of right size budget and so forth. Yeah. Um, so there were some hard decisions for a lot of leaders in, you know, right sizing their staffing to, you know, manage according to budget. Um, so that means teams are leaner. Uh, but in many ways, they're doing more than they've ever had to do because we're trying to figure out how do we do ministry both well in a digital context, in addition to uh, some in-person context for depending on where you are and, you know, where your church is and that um, journey. So there's there's almost more to do than ever with a, an even leaner team. And then those teams are needing to be strong and unified and aligned while they're also fatigued. You know, because it's just been 
a lot for everybody over the past year. So I, you know, the conversations I'm having with leaders are really around um, just what it's taking to lead themselves well, and then the intentionality in leading their teams and realizing that their teams probably need a little more attention and focus than they even have had have needed historically. Yeah, I, I think that's really great insight. And I'd, I'd love to hear from you on, I'd like to just ask a couple of questions about the key leader and then a couple of questions about team dynamics. Because in my experience, your average run-of-the-mill leader is often the last to know when they're not okay. Um, we, we, I think it's because, I, I don't think it's a um, coming from a bad place. I think we're others focused, we're driven for the cause. What would you say is an early sign that a leader can be aware of to say, I, I need to do more self-care or I need to step out and get some help? Uh, that's good. And I, and I wonder if it varies, you know, according to personality of like understanding what those things are for you. But I would say, you know, one of the one of the just like general statements I've been using and coaching with some of the leaders I've worked with is, hey, whatever your rhythms were for self-care pre-COVID, pre-pandemic, you almost need to double them because I'm, I'm just noticing it's requiring so much more energy emotionally, mentally, even physically to some degree to lead through just so much unknown. And, you know, there's that whole concept of decision fatigue and, you know, especially early in this, but even still to at this point in the journey, we're still having to make so many decisions that we used to not have to make. Can we meet safely this week or not? Um, you know, we had another round of spikes of cases. Now what do we do? You know, so it's like we keep finding ourselves having to navigate new decisions and and having to respond to them quickly. And so what I've been encouraging leaders is whatever your rhythm of self-care was pre-pandemic, you're probably needing to double it. And, you know, it's just a general, but it's it's kind of encouraging. What I notice is that we we start, we quickly shut out the self-care rhythms of Sabbath and rest and rejuvenation, whatever all of those things are for you. We tend to cut those out when we're under pressure. When in fact, I think what we're noticing is we actually probably need to increase those because we're, we're draining ourselves so much more quickly, right? We're expending all of our energy so much more quickly that, that increasing our attention to what do we need to um, rejuvenate, be healthy. So I guess I would answer that in saying whatever would be your normal, you probably need to increase it rather than decrease it would be the like the just the quick the quick response to that. I really like that. I, I, I just as I reflect on the adjustments I've had to make as a lead pastor, one of one of the biggest things that's been difficult is I'm just I, I feel so much less productive. Yes. And it's because it's not just the f decision fatigue. And then, of course, the follow up. Uh, what, what's the right word for it? Feedback from the congregation about each <laughs> there you other. Go. Yeah. Yes. Uh, that's the other price I think a lot of leaders have had to pay is they're like leading into the unknown, making a decision. Yeah. And what we've tried to navigate in our church is just to be very upfront and say, look, this might be the wrong decision. We're making yeah. the best decision we can with the information we have. And it might be the right decision now and the wrong decision next week. We're trying to at least coach our church to realize no one quite knows what to do. And yeah. people of goodwill are making the best effort. But the, the other piece I've really struggled to forgive myself for is I'm, I'm now quite the stay-at-home dad. Uh. Uh, three kids, uh, you know, online school at home. Yep. And I'm the lunch guy. I've now become <laughs> the social outlet when my uh -huh. kids get off Zoom and they have these little 15-minute breaks. They need someone yeah. they to go hang out with their friends. And I just, I get less work done. Right. And what I've noticed in myself, Jenny, as a so-called uh, self-care guy, is it is the first to sacrifice because I don't want to violate my, my work ethic. Right. Um, right. What's your reaction uh, to that? You know, I, I think you make a great point because I, and I think we're, we, in some ways, I think it's starting to catch up with us, but I'd be curious if this was true for you, that early on, we didn't make acknowledgements for those extra responsibilities or demands or just that engagement required from helping the kids do school from home and just the extra that that means. 
And like you said, you're just you're wearing so many hats and juggling so many things where we could be a little bit more laser focused, you know, historically. But now when all of it, you know, our worlds have been interconnected for a long time, but it's like this past year, it is all mashed up in just a big, you know, big mess that acknowledging that and being comfortable with that. And I think you're exactly right. I think we um, especially those of us who are so driven to be productive, uh, that starts to weigh on you emotionally too of like i i can't find a i can't quantify what did i do today you know or i didn't do as much as i might have historically so you know i'm a i'm an achiever by nature and so paying attention to that is really important i think in giving awareness and credit to just the demands have shifted and i have to have different expectations for myself and then for leaders those helping right size those expectations for your teams yeah, right. Yeah, being kind to yourself as you as you navigate it. As I was saying in the introduction, I I really appreciate your attention to what's going on inside, but you also do coach leaders on productivity, efficiency, you know, metrics, uh, goals. Sure. It's been interesting as I've done quite a bit of coaching this past year. How many of the leaders I coach, I thought we'd be getting into leadership anxiety and childhood vows and some of my stuff. And how many of them want to talk about how do I organize my calendar? Uh. So what I've noticed, Jenny, is I think this last year, people got, how do I say it? If, if they can handle five things and they thrive when they have five projects, they were given 10 and it, and it paralyzed them. Yeah. Um, yeah. So would you just speak to the leader that's feeling paralyzed by the amount and the breadth of work? Hmm. And they just find themselves spinning. You know, they're not being yeah. efficient. Because, uh, what's your next step for them to to get back on track? Oh, that's good. That's a good, great question. You know, I think, uh, and I'll just speak a little bit to what I do because that's well, how I know to coach, Please. right? But, yeah. um, you know, because I, I same same place of like, oh my gosh, you know, there's just so much that I feel like I'm trying to to wrangle and feel responsible for. And I, I, when I get in those moments, I have to stop and take inventory. It's the, okay, get it all written out, get it out of my head onto paper so that there's almost, you know, it, 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 there's something in that, I think, just in making sure it moves from here to someplace where it's captured. Um, and that helps relieve the anxiety, I think, that I feel. And then look, and then putting it somewhere of like, okay, where can it go? So I'm a big advocate of everything I do is on my calendar. I mean, I mean, down to when I exercise, where my lunch break is, when I mean, my husband jokes, he's like, hey, so can I get on your calendar? You know, because (laughs) I'm like, if it's on my calendar, I'm committed. Like we're, you know, so, you know, it's kind of a family joke of like, hey, can where can I get on your calendar? I'm not a big fan of to do lists. I think that to do lists are just they're mentally tiring because you're not sure when it's going to happen. Mm -hmm. So I'm a fan of if there's something that you know, so I do that, get it all out of here, make a list. Okay. But then everything on that list needs to find a place on my calendar because it's going to require time somewhere, or it needs to be delegated to someone. So it can't just live on a to-do list because there's just the anxiety of this endless list of things that I have no idea when they're actually going to happen. But instead I look at it and go, okay, what are the priorities and where, where, and when can I do that? And then I actually like, schedule it on my calendar. And I find that to be super helpful. And I coach a lot of leaders in that of, you know, your what gets scheduled gets done. And so if you can find a place for it, then it actually relieves some of that stress of it too, because you know when it's going to happen. You know, so if I'm, I've got this project kind of looming in the back of my mind or a conversation that needs to take place with somebody, if I know it's scheduled and it's on the calendar, then I'm not stressing about it anymore because I know, I know it's going to happen. It has a place it's been, it's been allocated for. Uh, so that's one of the best ways that I do. What would, what would you say, Steve? What do you, how do you manage that for yourself? I, yeah, I think a very similar answer, actually, Jenny. Um, I try to set triggers in my mind when I'm spinning. So uh, I, I try to notice, man, I'm just spinning. And then some kind of externalization. My, my best work is usually when I change my environment. Uh, oh, so sometimes yes. it's an hour, sometimes it's a day. And then I, every time I change my environment, I'm like, why don't I do this more often? I, the amount yes. of time I do sit spinning. And for me, I, I try to coach leaders on, okay, how many different projects can you manage at once? 
And in my life, at least, I think what you and I think are both Enneagram threes. Is that accurate? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. So in my life, I think I'm good with about six to nine projects. Uh-huh. And anything less than about six, I get lazy. Anything ah. more than nine, I get um, overwhelmed. Yep. And so that also helps me to figure out, okay, if I've got 15 projects, uh, uh, okay, well, which, which six to nine this week am I going to tackle? Um, yeah. My biggest personal struggle this last year has been the disruption of my, of my preaching rhythm. Oh, I bet. Um, yeah. And I used to have a place where I'd write and it was quiet. And my poor kids, I've noticed like if I'm sitting in the kitchen doing dishes, I'm still sermonizing in my head. Right. And I, I took, it took me too long to realize that their interruption was actually a gift rather than a curse because <laughs> I'm in my own head figuring uh-huh. things out and they're, they're trying to have a conversation. I'm not present. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's kicked, it's kicked my butt a little bit this year. It's been good for me to have to dig deeper. And I think going back to your earlier answer of, of whether it's twice as much time or twice as much intentionality, that's been there true in my life. I'll just say when I was a chaplain, one of the most profound lessons I was taught was that the emergency room doesn't create the crisis, it exposes the crisis. So uh-huh. if, if someone's on the gurney and they're busting through the double doors, then a minute or two later, the family shows up, the loved ones, and whatever dynamic that family had before the crisis is exposed. That's good. And, and so my job as a chaplain was to to notice the exposure and then try to help them. And I, that's how I take 2020 is it, it didn't, it didn't create the soul of the of the leader. It revealed it. Yeah, that's good. Uh, and so yep. what are we going to do this year that's different? Yeah, that's really good. You're exactly right. I think, you know, under pressure, under stress, what's already in comes out, right? And so it it did. It revealed it revealed more of who we are yeah. and probably given us a lot to to process and reflect on for sure. Yeah. So Jenny, a lot of your work is you are called in to work with teams. Uh and Maybe you know one person on that team, you might have a sense of the team, but then you show up, whether it's on Zoom or in person. What are you looking for in that team to give you an indication of whether they're healthy or not? Ah, great. Yeah, great question. Uh, a few things come to mind, kind of top of mind. There's a, there's a number of things that I'm watching for, but you know, certainly the engagement and interaction of the team, are they, are they laughing? Are they having fun together? Are they really reserved and quiet and act like they don't even know one another? You know, it's like, you can pretty quickly, like just tell the energy of a team from their interaction. Um, But then the deeper layer of that is, you know, what are the dynamics of their, uh, of how they're communicating with one another or, uh, you know, I, I find often that I'll I'll go into team dynamics and I quickly discover this is a, a phrase that I use a lot is like, y'all are being way too polite uh, because I'll notice that they're not willing to disagree with one another. And I'll see it in their 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 body language or, you know, somebody who's holding back or, you, you know, you can just kind of feel it when you're in a room when there's the topics that are untouchable or just we don't go there. And that's always that's a like I think it's meant to be I think oftentimes we think it's a it's a uh we're just being respectful or kind and it actually is really in my opinion dysfunctional for healthy teams that you know they need to be able to engage and talk about the things that are uncomfortable or ask the hard question or um and all done respectfully but you can quickly notice if a team is unwilling to uh, get a little scrappy with one another. That's, you know, that's a that's a big thing that I'll pay attention to because sometimes teams can look really nice and polite and they actually are quite dysfunctional. The converse is true also. If, you know, if they just get in there and they duke it out and they're completely disrespectful to one another, then we got a whole other, you know, <laughs> dynamic on the other end of it. Yeah. But, you know, the big thing that I I probably look for, Steve, and I'll, I'll suss this out sometimes um, in the pre-work that I do with clients is... How integrated are the different ministries and departments or how siloed are they? Uh, how territorial are we from one team to another? And I think, you know, as we kicked off the the podcast with, you know, what are we noticing about teams because of this year? I think what we've discovered is that if our teams are really siloed, we're dead in the water. Like we didn't know how to work together to find out a new way forward. And, um, and so I do think that's one thing that leaders are having to pay attention to this year is kind of busting up that idea that this is what I do. And I work in this team and I do this to all of us owning, hey, we have a shared mission as a ministry or an organization. And we all ultimately serve 
the big vision of our organization, not the smaller. I mean, we do serve the smaller vision of our the respective team that we're on, but the the big vision has to come first. And um, so I noticed that pretty quickly too. I could probably give you another dozen things that I'm paying attention to or looking for, but those are some some of the first ones that stand out to me. Yeah, it's outstanding. I really like that. I, I, what I appreciate about what you said is I think what you're seeing, people are sensing, but I think you're giving them a way to say it, right? Sure. Like, so most people tend to feel that, but they don't know how to say it. But I, I think you gave us just a tactile way to to move forward. Uh, there's, there's been so much attention in the last year or two on the damage and power of narcissistic tendencies in leaders. Mm -hmm. And so I'm guessing, I'm not interested in obviously names and dates, but I'm guessing that you've run into that in your consulting too. You come into sure. a team yeah, and for some reason, there's a disparity of power. There's a, a fear around a particular leader. Tragically, unfortunately, it's often the key leader. Right, um, yeah. How do you notice when that's the case? Because that can be tricky at first to, to notice. It can be tricky at first to notice, and 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 oftentimes, not not exclusively, um, but oftentimes in those cases, it's that leader who's brought me in. Oh wow! You know because they perhaps they've recognized, hey, we need some support, but they want to control it, and on occasion, a second chair leader will be the one that brought me in, uh, but one of two things will happen either that you know kind of narcissistic leader will either quickly align and build alliance with me or they will be dismissive and disconnected from the whole process um, which is not going to help matters because um you know if it's not if they're not owning the the desire to see the team be stronger and healthier then it's you know we're going to have a lid to our ability to move forward because the staff immediately feel that the leaders disconnected from this work that we're trying to do and they all know whether they'll say it or not but there's a you know the the challenge starts with the leader at the top um and uh you know it it you know it really varies steve i've had some leaders who really grew through the work um, and had some eye-opening moments and recognized that they were in many ways uh, a big part of some of the dysfunction that was happening with the team. And then I've had other cases where it, it was just clear at some point that this, this leader is not ready to be honest or, or, or acknowledge their ownership in the unhealth of the team. And there have been occasions where I've just said, I think I've done as much as I can do to serve you and goodbye. <laughs> um, and, and that's really heartbreaking because there's, you know, there have been a number of cases where, um, you know, team members get so hopeful about the possibility of the, the, the culture being healthier. And if it becomes clear that the leader is not interested in really doing the work, um, and, and that, that's probably one of the most grieving situations that I'll walk into is when you just know that the leader's not there yet. Like they're just not, they're just not ready. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> I was going to say, you, do you know those? I'm sure you know those situations oh, too. I, it's, it, I just feeling my own emotional responses. You talked, um, you know, when I wrote my book, I was somehow not very exposed to the fact that I'm the lead pastor. So the lead pastor at our church is concerned about emotional health. And then, my book gets out there and I'd start hearing from associates and youth ministers, these amazing people who were saying, what do I do when the lead guy is the opposite? Of, he's the problem. And he, yeah. we try to yeah. tell him and he is like walking on eggshells and yeah. Yeah. So that it's, it's, that's been good for me to figure out how to dig a little deeper with my tools and say, yeah, there's still a lot you can do, but if the, if the key leader is not in, like they'd really do set the speed of the team. Yeah, I had one situation where um, a pretty song, strong second chair leader was a a really had created quite a buffer between the senior leader who was just not super healthy and but that the second chair leader was a, a really strong leader who had the capacity and really really led a lot of the day to day of the staff team and um, when that sec that second chair leader eventually exited right because you know, 
they what nobody else knew is what the second chair leader was navigating with that first chair leader and constantly yeah. being the buffer and the um and so below the second chair the culture was pretty strong and pretty healthy now there were obviously you can't completely mitigate when you have a, lead, a top leader who's unhealthy but the tragedy was that when the second chair leader exited um it was all it it, it actually i think unintentionally the second chair leader even further I don't know if they, their protection to the team in that season eventually caught up with the whole organization because when they exited, it was, I mean, it was just whiplash for the staff team. Um, And so I've seen, I've seen a situation like that and it's heartbreaking because you had a pretty strong second chair leader who was trying to keep everything healthy under their scope of responsibility, but at the end of the day, couldn't completely mitigate for, you know, manage for an unhealthy leader at the top. Yeah. So it's, I mean, it's so tricky. It's sobering. It's, it's really sobering. It's the, the other unexpected thing for me, I'm guessing you've seen this too, um, is emotional health language is continues to infiltrate leadership. And yeah. Pete Scazzaro in some ways being the grandfather of this, I think. Yeah. What has caught me off guard is narcissists who co-op emotional health language. Yes. I was not ready for that. I was like, yes. oh, of course they would. But they, yeah. they, they talk about not like I, I even worked with an organization where when I say narcissist, I don't necessarily mean NPD. I just generally mean highly unaware of the impact of your actions and behavior on others. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. And then when, when presented with the impact, generally denying it, you know. Right. Uh, but I, I was in one organization where the key leader used non-anxious presence language. You had, had gone through Scazzaro's material, uh-huh. but was then wielding it against uh, his team. Ouch. I was like, wow, that took some jujitsu on my part. <laughs> I'd expose that, you know. Right, right. Yeah. Do you have some stories of, of leaders that, you know, that you were able to bring, help bring them to some greater awareness and some success stories, if you will, of, of working with? So yes, I, I have a wonderful story of a leader I worked with and it just took two significant failures for ah. him to come to his senses. It was kind of a prodigal experience. Yeah. So he, he kind of came to the end of himself as a leader. And I, I'll say about him, he, he was just young and just somewhat willfully blind to the impact of his own behavior and actions. Sure. Um, I'll, I'll be frank, Jenny, he was quite a Mark Driscoll disciple. And that mm-hmm. just that whole, I think he was really empowered by the masculinity and the be a man yeah. and take a hill. And so then he was riding off the ter- really the terrible impact. But to his great, I, I have tremendous respect for him because he had two pretty rough failures, came to the end of himself, began difficult repair work. Wow. Um, so, so that, but... But generally speaking, what I'm looking for, I'm a little uncomfortable because I'm the interviewer here, but... <laughs> Sorry, I'll flip no, it back okay. around on you. Um, it's great to have a conversation, but I'm always looking for what's their immediate reaction when you show them the impact of their behavior? Because, you know, I'm a type A, Enneagram mm-hmm. 3, want to take a hill. Yeah, I still, to this day, do damage to my team. It's just that I've I've said to my whole team, here's our shared values that we've all agreed upon. We're all yep. going to violate them at some point, including me. And when I violate them, please bring this document to me Good. and show me the impact of my behavior. And I will repent. Like I'm yeah. I'm not interested in... So, so one clear example is I used to run my mouth a lot. I was not aware as a leader how much my words had impact because I'm, I'm a verbal processor. Sure. And so I've really had to work on... Mm. Be, being careful about what I say because good, I wear good people out with my external processing. Sure. Uh, and, and so that's what I'm always looking for that in, in these leaders that I'm aware is do they move toward the light? Yeah. You know, yeah. So good. Take on that? I think you're exactly right. It's the, is there, uh, and, and I, and I'm, I'm curious, you know, cause you talked about that particularly they're having to, go through a couple of pretty major failures. And I think that's what I've noticed as well is that most often they do have to come to the end of themselves for that realization to occur. And I think there's this, this hopeful part of me that is like, is it possible for that to happen before we get to the failure, you know, before we have the like 
full big blow up. Uh, you know, cause I, and I think that's my hope. Maybe uh, you know, uh, in the even in the work that we're doing at Foresight, and I'm sure that you share that as well. Is that, gosh, could we help bring awareness to this? And I, I often say that leadership is sacred work. You know, leadership begins with influence. Influence means the power to change or affect someone. And when you when you just kind of settle into that definition, the power to change or affect someone, and you realize, you know, as a leader, I have influence and I have the power to change or affect the lives of the people in my sphere of, of responsibility, that's, that, that should give us pause. Like we shouldn't be eager to jump into leadership responsibilities because there's just a sacredness to that that is sobering in many ways. And, but I don't think that is how we've framed leadership historically, like it's kind of become this, you know, this sexy thing to be a leader and, you know, like all the power and position that comes with it. And, uh, and I think we've negated the sacredness that sacred work that it is and, and the significance of that influence and how it, how, how we carry ourselves so deeply impacts the people around us. I guess I look, I, I have this hope that we can redeem the picture of a leader. It, you know, Barna did a research, uh, there's a report that they did last year, and I think it was something like 82% of young people, I think it was tw- ages 20, 20 to 35 or something, 18 to 35, said that we're in a leadership crisis because there are no good leaders. And I was like, as somebody who's given my life work to leadership, I'm like, Oh, this is heartbreaking that 82% of young people say we're in a leadership crisis because there are no good leaders. Like we're not modeling what healthy God honoring leadership looks like. And so I think my, my hope is that through the work that we're doing, it doesn't take every leader getting to a crisis or a failure before we realize the sacredness of leadership and the self leadership work required to steward that well. I think that's a, I think it's a great vision because th- there is part of me, like I get asked a lot in my work, hey, how do we avoid burnout? Mm-hmm. And we talk a lot about it. And I always try to say, maybe the best thing for you is to burn out. Like, because there's so much gospel on the other side of, right. like there's resurrection. Um, but I think you're right, Jenny. I, I, I think I have noticed even like with some leaders who are not very aware of their impact, right or wrong, they feel like they're not understood. You know, mm. they, they they do go into a, maybe it's a self-pity, but it's also like, look, you don't know what it's like to be me. Right. And you do look at some of these stereotypical leaders. I, I know you've had first-hand experience with this. Rapid growth, national attention, yep. lots of affirmation for your upfront gifts and your character can't keep up yep. um, and, and the internal pressure. And I, I do wonder if there's a way uh, one-on-one in, in private with a small group that you trust that you can get into some of the deeper topics like shame right. and rejection. Because um, it's been fascinating, you know, and, uh, as long as I've been at our church, we, we've grown from about 150 to about 1,200. I have no idea what size we are now. <laughs> right. uh, we're trying to figure that out. But the pressure increase has been insane. Yes. And I'm the same human. I, I'm not a better preacher. It's just that there's a bigger crowd. And so I'm given more yeah. credit for my preaching than I hmm. used to. Sure. And it's up to me to be careful. I don't, I don't know that, that even in my relatively small church, the pressure to become a, a micro celebrity is pretty hmm. disturbing. Wow. Yeah. 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 I, I, you know, I think having been walked with, you know, leaders that have been through that kind of growth. And, you know, I think as I reflect on some of those circumstances, the, and it's a gradual thing, right? The gradual, uh, the, the fewer safe places for real conversations or the people who can ask the hard questions or, you know, people who don't report to you or make their livelihood from you that still have access to you. And I think, you know, we, we can look at things when they get to the place of implosion and we go, oh, well, there, 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 you know, and you can kind of pinpoint all the reasons why that leader didn't have healthy accountability. But what I've often observed is it's very slow trajectory to the disintegration of all of those places for 
conversations of, hey, how do I feel? How do I handle the pressure of this? How do I deal with the voice of shame or the imposter syndrome thing of like, okay, well, who am I to be doing? You know, because all of those things I think are very real, even of the most narcissistic leaders. uh, You know, they're dealing with all those questions of doubt, fear, shame. and but there there are places for safe conversations. I think get smaller and smaller unless they're intentional to figure out how to keep them built in. And the pressure of the pace and the rapid growth and all of that it's it's like the self care thing. It just starts squeezing out the very thing you need more of. And I think that's what I notice in some of the the situations that I've been able to be a little closer to is that you know that the system if you will, the system kind of exasperates um, the trajectory. And, you know, and I do think we have a bit of a, uh, you know, uh, just a culture problem in the church in general of, of elevating pastors to places of celebrity and that being a kind of a perceived part of the role in the large American church. Yeah, I have an undergraduate degree with a major in Bible. And then mm-hmm. I went and got a graduate degree uh, in Bible. And so I have seven years full-time studying the scripture. And because of that, I can make meaning out of the Bible for people. And because of that, they think I'm closer to Jesus than they are. They don't sit there saying, well, he was well-educated. Like if they had seven years of full-time undergrad and graduate Bible, they could do this too. Sure. And of course, I'm paid every week to free up 15, 20 hours a week of my time to study that Bible. It's an incredible privilege. But that's what we have wrestled with as a church is the amount of spiritual authority I am granted, not because Mm. I'm a spiritual person, but because I've been well-educated in, you know, like the lady or the man for that matter, changing the diaper in the nursery is not necessarily further away from Jesus than I am. I'm just trained in interpreting scripture, which right, right. everyone's longing for is a word from the Lord. Man, right. insidious, I think. Um, huh. Insidious temptation to believe that because I know Bible and I know how to make meaning out of it, that means I must be close to God. Right. Right. Mm. Wow. Jenny, let's just talk briefly before we get to the gauntlet. I know I can tell in your face you've been postponing the gauntlet. You know, you want to run away, but it's coming. It's coming. <laughs> It's yeah. coming. It's coming. Um, All right. I'd love to hear your take on on uh, men and women in leadership, because you know you you work with church groups. You also do a lot of corporate coaching, and it's still uh-huh. fascinating to me that here we are in 2021, and in the corporate world, men and women in leadership is largely an equal thing. This I think there's still a pay disparity issue, but in the church, it sure. can get really weird. Uh, what what do you see that's hopeful about men and women in leadership, and what do you see that's concerning? Yeah. Um, great question. You know, I, when I came into full-time ministry, I guess it was about 15 years or so ago and I'd come from the corporate world. So I had, you know, kind of experience in the corporate environment and, you know, I was often the only woman at the table, but that was just a byproduct of the number of females who were there, not that they were excluded. You know, I didn't feel, I didn't feel limited. I just was still a minority, but, um, going into ministry was a pretty like, pretty eye-opening experience for me because I you know, felt like I was being obedient to using my gifts for the kingdom. And I thought, what a, what a remarkable privilege and opportunity to do this inside the local church. And it was immediately met with a lot of resistance. We had people leave the church over me coming in as we called me executive director. We didn't even give me a pastor title. Um, and uh, which again, I was coming from corporate. So I was like, oh, well, whatever, you know, um, but it was really grieving that just by nature of my gender, uh, there was uh, very strong opinions and it was consequential to the church because we lost some families because of it. Um, now, I had the support of the lead, you know, the leaders that I served under uh, or they clearly wouldn't have brought me in. But it, it certainly was it was certainly eye opening. And it, it was a journey for the next handful of years. And real honestly, that I, I, I just dug into scripture and started studying backwards and forwards, reading everybody I could about theology of, of women and ministry and leadership and really felt a conviction to say, hey, do what do I believe, you know, I'm going to study and I'm going to seek God about you know, what does it mean for me to use my gifts in a ministry context? What do I believe scripture has to say about this? So I felt like it was really important for me to be clear on scripture so I could confidently 
keep moving forward. And I understand really wonderful, thoughtful leaders land at different places on women in ministry leadership. And I can, I can respect it if you've done the work. That would be my caveat. If you've done the study and you, I can respect where you land. So all that to say that what I'm encouraged by is that over the course of the 15 years, you know, I was kind of a rare kind of unicorn in the church world as a female in a second chair leadership seat. And we have radically seen that grow and, and shift over 15 years and the number of women who now serve in higher levels of ministry, leadership, et cetera. So that is encouraging because I can look at that 15 years and I can see a lot of a lot of growth in that. I think where I have maybe some questions or concerns is I still I actually still see women hold back a bit when given opportunities. Another thing I'm, I'm encouraged by is the number of pastors who reach out to me and say, hey, I've got some amazing women on my team. How do I need to develop them? I'm hearing that more than I've ever heard it. And I just love it because there are so many senior leaders who are saying, I want to be more intentional. I want to be more thoughtful about this and super encouraged by that. I am seeing women a little uh, hesitant sometimes then to step into those things. And so that's where, you know, in the opportunities that I have to coach women leaders, I'm saying, hey, you, you gotta, got you gotta step into if you, if, again, if you feel called, if it's, you know, something that you feel like God is asking you to do step into those responsibilities. I do think in some ways, I feel like it, we almost kind of like we're seeing in so many areas, more extremes in that the churches, you know, in some places you have churches that are being more intentional to see men and women working in ministry in a healthy way, side by side. And then you have others that are kind of going to the extreme other side of being a little more restrictive. So in some ways, I kind of see a little bit of each end of the spectrum. But by and large, Steve, I guess I feel more encouraged that the conversations are growing. I think more pastors and senior leaders are aware and are being intentional to invite more women into ministry leadership roles. So I tend to be an optimist and see see the positive side of it. But yeah. Okay. Then so as a woman in leadership, what would you like me as a man to know about leading in a church as a woman? Yeah, great question. I think what I would like you to know is that for most women, they still end up being the only, they're often still the only female at the table. And that is a really tiring place to be. Because um, you can, you know, reverse, reverse the script and pretend that every room that you walk into, you're the only guy. And, and maybe that's not quite apples for apples, but, but you can kind of get the sentiment of it. Like if you're, if you're always, every room you walk into, you're the outlier, which immediately makes you have to be more aware of you're different. You know, do they accept me? Do I belong here? You know, all those questions and fears and doubts are, are kind of present and top of mind. So when most of the, the tables you sit at or the rooms that you enter, you are the outlier it requires a lot of energy and like some good self-leadership work to show up consistently. And so I think I just ask male leaders to just understand that if that's the case, you know, there are some teams that are much more balanced and, you know, equal representation of men and women at the table. And that's fantastic. But we're still in an era where most of the women who sit at executive, especially executive level leadership in churches, they're typically the only one there. And that just requires a little extra um, emotional energy from them to show up every day. An outstanding answer. Thank you. Let's get onto the gauntlet then, Jenny. All right, let's do it. So I've been doing so much work with leaders this last year on the inner critic, the story we tell us. Oh, and yeah, yeah. one of the simplest ways to get clarity on the inner critic is when you don't have all the information. Uh, Jeannie Duck famously says, in the absence of information, we connect the dots pathologically. Uh, so when, when you don't have all the information... What is the story your inner critic says about yourself, if, if that makes sense? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. My inner critic, I would say that you you don't have enough information. And so you need to get you need to do more work. You're not prepared. You're not qualified. Who are you to think you should be doing this? Because, you know, there are a zillion more people who are more qualified and have more experience or know more who could be doing this work. I think that's, yeah, that's the, that's the message. I also run into a lot of leaders who would look at someone like you and not believe that this is an ongoing struggle. When Mm. would you say just roughly is the last time that that message kicked in your head? Oh gosh, probably in preparation for a couple of meetings I have this afternoon, right? <laughs> you know, I mean, it it is, it's a, uh, you know, and part of it is, I think as leaders, we're always pushing and stretching ourselves. Um, and then once we're, we're on the brink of, you know, I have a, I have a meeting this afternoon um, that is, you know, key to some growth for foresight. And, you know, as I'm prepping for that call this morning, I'm like, I'm not ready for this. I, I don't, I don't think I don't, you know, who am I to think that we can do this? You know, that, that, you know, this is the next growth edge for foresight, you know? So yeah, it's, it's constant. It's yeah. Awesome. Another, a lot of the work I do is helping people understand how their family of origin shows up in all their leadership environments. So what would be one trait that you've inherited from your family of origin? That's a real asset in leadership and what's one that's a liability. Oh, that's so good. Um, okay. So the one that would be an asset would be, I came from a family that just is a, as a get it done family, you know, very blue collar, small town, hardworking people, you know, just the figure it out and make it happen kind of attitude, uh, was very much a part of how I was raised. And, and, and I, and I, I pretty much take that into, my work of you can figure this out, you can work hard, get it done, make it happen. Uh, so that very much, I think, mostly serves me well. The liability would be kind of a scarcity mindset or a frugal approach to everything. In uh, and so, I have a real like my word for this year is abundance in thinking more abundantly in generosity and gratitude. Like that's just kind of another one of the things that God has been keeping top of mind for me because I can have a scarcity mentality of that. There's not enough. There never will be enough. I won't be safe. I won't be taken care of that kind of scarcity messaging, you know, in some ways it, you know, we were, we, I was raised pretty, uh, our resources were pretty lean. And so in some ways that frugalness served us well, but then there's a dark side to that that catches me pretty frequently. Yeah, that's really, that's really good. Uh, a, a lot of leaders, um, they struggle with a gap between what they believe about God and what they experience mm. from God. And yeah. particularly like preaching leaders, we then have the added pressure of what we proclaim about God versus what we experience from God. Is there a, a current gap for you that you grapple with? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, it probably goes hand in hand with the last thing I said, but I, I literally, my husband and I were having this conversation in our planning for 2021, kind of our family, you know, budgeting and planning session. And I said, do I really trust that God's my provider? Like, do I, cause I believe that, like, I believe that God provides, that God cares that, but then in sometimes how I behave in the tendency to need to control, uh, and, you know, and again, I'm grateful. I think that I do think there we ha- we do all have a stewardship responsibility to steward what God has entrusted us with and be smart and wise about, you know, uh, our resources and all those things. So I, you know, I think there's a responsibility that we have in that. But I think I can have a tendency to just then try to over control that and feel fully responsible for everything that I have. And then that can trigger fear of losing something or, you know, not being, uh, you know, achieving enough or or whatever. And so I really, I really live in that gap of, I say that I believe that God is ultimately my provider and that he cares and will provide for me. And yet how I behave and what I experience is that it's all up to me. I'm, I'm responsible. Yeah. Is that, is that kind of get what you're saying? Absolute gold. Yeah. Okay. The final question in studies on chronic anxiety and, and the way anxiety can invade our body, there's two things that can't coexist with anxiety. One is love and one is laughter. You, you can't be anxious while you're laughing. You, you can't be anxious while you feel loved. For me, it really 
brings to life John in First John, the perfect love casts out. So to that end, when in your life do you feel most fully and completely loved? Hmm. I can think of a, 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 it's probably a great like micro example of, of, of but my niece is um, three and for right, the week before Christmas, um, I, my niece is three, my nephew's five. And I took each of them on separate outings just as like little Christmas outings to hang out. And um, so my niece and I were going to this thing called the Nutcracker in the castle. And there's a, there's an art center in our community that does a Nutcracker display in the castle. And I mean, it's beautiful and it's just so girly. Right. And so this was the first year my niece was going to go to it. And so we get out of the car and we're walking up to the castle and she's holding my hand and she says, I'm so excited to be spending the day with you. And you know, that, like that just moment of connection and just feeling very loved and wanted in the moment um, is probably a great example of those types of moments for me. Folks, Jenny is, is a veteran uh, church coach and leadership coach, whether you uh, are on a church staff, uh, you know, a lot of my listeners, you guys are Christians who lead in the marketplace and, and Jenny's offerings are really broad. And she's not one of those consultants that kind of just makes up things she can do. It's all forged out of experience and passion. Uh, I've got a number of friends who have been personally coached by Jenny. She's come into their organizations and people rave about it. So if you're feeling stuck, if you need some extra horsepower this year, whether it's as an individual or as a team, uh, Jenny, what's the best way for people to connect with you? Awesome. Well, Steve, thanks for that those kind words and support. But yeah, the best way to connect is um, I'm Jenny Catron on all social media. So it's J-E-N-N-I-C-A-T-R-O-N. So you can message me that way. But then our website is getforesight.com. It's the word get, the number four, and the word site, S-I-G-H-T. And uh, if you go to getforesight.com, everything, the leadership coaching and the team consult or team culture work that we do, all of that is listed there. And we just love to, to stay connected. So That's great. Thanks so much, Steve. Awesome. Thanks for coming on the show. This is great. For more resources, visit stevecusswords.com or missyoualliance.org.